You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. We confess that um, we, we indeed have no other place to go. You have the words of eternal life. So would you, Jesus Christ, make yourself known to us through your word that by the power of the Holy Spirit our eyes might be opened, our minds might be able to receive and comprehend all that you have for us as we read Jesus, your very words as you call disciples to yourself and all that that entails. Cause our hearts to continue to worship you as we spend a little time in your word this morning. Glorify yourself, Jesus, in this time. In this room and in our hearts. We pray this in your matchless name, Jesus our King. Amen. And amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. Uh, you can grab your Bibles and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. Uh, Luke 14, if you need a, a Bible, some folks are coming around. And um, it's uh, page 510 in the kind of bluish turquoise Bibles that are being handed out. Um, Luke 14, we're going to look at verses 25 through 35 this morning. I mean, as you're finding your place, I'd like to start with a little bit of an illustration that I think is helpful with this question. Have you ever tried to sell something? Or maybe, um, on the, maybe you've been on the other side of this arrangement where someone is trying to sell something to you. What's the strategy of a salesperson? Usually, I think it's to, for the most part, their goal is to convince the buyer that they want the thing that's trying to be sold, right? If you're the buyer, the seller is trying to convince you, you want this thing. Now, um, I I use this illustration because my wife Amy and I are in the market now, as of this last week, for a new-to-us used vehicle for our family. Um, The one we've had uh, for about eight years is showing signs of age and wear and tear. Uh, We've put on, I don't know, 80 to 100,000 miles on some Epic family road trips. It's been great. But compared to the value of the vehicle, the cost to fix some of the things that are starting to fail, we're like, "Eh, is this worth it? Right? So we're looking. And the one part of this whole thing that I'm not looking forward to are the salespeople. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't fault a salesperson for what they do. I don't. I think sales is a remarkably difficult job. I don't care what industry it is. I just don't like feeling the pressure, right? Because the tactic is usually for the salesperson to present every possible good thing about this vehicle. It's got power steering. It's got power windows. It's got heated seats. By the way, it also has cup holders. I always think it's funny that on every car listing, like go look up used cars this afternoon and check the list of things it has included on it more often than not, they list cup holders. Like every car after 96 has cup holders, man. Like we all know. I just think it's funny that cup holders are always listed. Why? 
Because they want you to know every possible thing that might convince you that this is the car for you. Right? I mean, it makes sense, right? Every good sales pitch is going to make sure that every pro is highlighted and the cons are minimized. At the end of the day, at least in this case, the goal of the salesman is to sell the car. They want me to drive away with the car that used to be in their lot. That's, that's the goal. And in our passage today, which we'll read here in a second, Jesus is making, if I can say it this way, a bit of a sales pitch for what it means to be his disciple. Crowds of people are following Jesus around. Wherever he goes, there's more people. Now, some are just curious about this phenomenon of Jesus. Some have heard that he feeds the hungry and heals the sick, and so that's compelling. Some don't like him at all, and so they're seeking to trip him up and try to ask him questions, get him in trouble. But some are so compelled after meeting this man that they leave everything, their livelihoods, their jobs, to follow him. And here, Jesus gives a sales pitch that would probably get him fired from most sales teams in the country, in just about any job, because Jesus is not looking for a quick sale. At the end of the day, the sales guy at the dealership wants me to drive away in their vehicle. But to Jesus, to be his disciple, to follow him, is much more than just a one-time sign on the dotted line. Jesus' pitch, if you will, his invitation to discipleship changes everything. That to be his disciple now rewrites the entire trajectory of your life. This isn't an add-on. So in our passage today, I think Jesus is addressing half-hearted disciples. So that's what I want to look at today. That the call to follow Jesus, the call to be his disciple, is a call to full surrender. And my commentary on the passage is that it's worth it. So let's read our text. Luke 14. We're going to read verses 25 to the end of the chapter, verse verse 35. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now great crowds accompanied him. This is Jesus. Accompanied Jesus. And he turned to them and said... If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish... All those who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is God's holy word for us this morning. As I said The call to be Jesus' disciple is a call to full surrender, and it is 
worth it. So this sales pitch, if you will, this call to be a disciple of Jesus is not designed to make the life of a disciple as appealing as it can be, rather to present the hard parts, the reality parts, in order to weed out a little bit those who are only partially interested, those who are half-hearted. So we find that Jesus' call to be his disciple is a call to three things I found in this text. Commitment, a call to count the cost, and a caution. Now, I just added the word caution. I was going to use the word warning, but caution starts with a C and it means the same thing, so now we can remember it easier. By we, I mean me. The call to be Jesus' disciple is a call to commitment, it's a call to count the cost, and it's a caution. So first, let's look at this passage a little more in depth. Verse 25, Jesus turns and speaks to this great crowd that is gathered around him, which is becoming a theme for him. And here's the pitch, verse 26. Here's the sales pitch. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This verse falls into that category of hard things that Jesus says. Might be in the top ten. Right? What does this mean, though? When we read it, we go, okay, I'm sensing contradictions. I'm not sure what to do with a passage like this. I mean, the Bible is clear, right? We're called to love our neighbor. The law given to Moses in Exodus specifically says that we're to honor our fathers and our mothers so that it goes well with us. The Scriptures tell parents, don't exasperate your children. We're called to bear one another's burdens as brothers and sisters, right? So what do we do with a text like this when Jesus is saying some pretty harsh things? Well, I think this helps us a little bit. When we read the word hate, we often read it in terms of like or dislike or opposition. But this way of speaking that Jesus is using is a rhetorical tool that would have been familiar to his listeners, Rabbis would highlight, using this word hate, not the value of like or dislike, but to highlight matters of priority. If the choice is between two things, and you have to choose one of them, which one do you choose? And in comparison to the one you choose, the other is despised. In comparison. It's a matter of priority. Jesus uses similar language in Matthew chapter 6 where he says no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. He says you cannot serve both God and money. And we go, okay, that makes sense. We can draw that distinction. But the language is very similar. Jesus is drawing a line of priority to say, compared to me, everything else is less. So it's not a a contradiction. It's just saying in an ultimate sense, there can only be one. One master, under one thing, or, or one person in this case, and then underneath them, everything else falls. So what Jesus is saying, I think, is that the commitment to follow him, that the devotion, your devotion, or love of everything else comes second to Jesus. James Edwards, in his commentary on Luke, he says this, I found it helpful, I'll give it to you. He says, hate should not be understood in terms of emotion or malice. Rather, it's in the Hebraic sense, signifying that the thing rejected 
is a choice between two important claims. Essentially, it's this. If your love for your family, your parents, your wife, your kids, or even the preservation of your own life, if any of those things would somehow come into conflict with your love for Jesus, the disciple of Jesus chooses Jesus. Or to say it another way, if following Jesus puts me at odds with father or mother or husband or wife or children, or even puts me at odds with my own safety and personal well-being, Jesus calls his disciples to humbly, by faith, follow him. And then Jesus says, and if you can't do this, if this isn't you, well, then you can't be my disciple. Jesus continues. Look at verse 27. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The idea of the cross at the time would have been a really hard thing to take in. For us, it's kind of lost some of its, its meaning. But at the time, as a Roman torture device, a cross was something to be avoided. It meant death. It meant shame. If we wanted to take a modern uh, uh, equivalent, we would say uh, the electric chair or the gallows where you'd be hung in the middle of town for crimes that you committed, right? The cross was something to be avoided. And Jesus says, oh, also, by the way, you've each got your own electric chair that you're going to have to bear as you follow me. And you've got to carry it. So, so think about it for a second. Imagine the listeners at the time Put yourself in their shoes. If following Jesus involves a cross, I have to ask the question, do I want that? Maybe I should think this through. What a sales tactic from Jesus, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in Germany at the time of World War II. He was part of an underground group of clergy who, in their work, sought to undermine Adolf Hitler and undermine what was happening amongst the, the evils of Nazism in Germany. Uh, Bonhoeffer wrote a book uh, called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a top ten book in, just for me. If I have a list of books, it's on the list. And full disclosure, this is not the only quote from that book that will show up in today's sermon. Um, also, as an aside, um, I bought a couple pairs of glasses this year because, like my truck, I'm also getting old, needing to replace things. And on a lark, I bought these glasses which my kids call the Harry Potter glasses, um, but I providentially are calling them the Diedrich Bonhoeffer glasses. If you want to put that slide up, John. The next slide, John. See? Like, they work. So there you go. You can think of our favorite German Lutheran pastor now as we, as we read. Here's Bonhoeffer writes this. Bonhoeffer writes this. Um, I'm going to read a chunk of the, the passage or the quote before we get to the one that's on the screen. So just listen here for a second. He says, The cross is laid on every Christian. This idea of taking up your cross. The first Christ's suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of the world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death. Bonhoeffer continues, and the tears is on the screen. Thus, it begins, he says, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. Instead, the cross meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
which is the quote you might be familiar with. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The call to follow Jesus is a call to die. So it's Jesus' own words when he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And if you're keeping score, this is now the second time Jesus has used that phrase. If you don't want to bear your cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. This is where we get the big idea for the text that I offered earlier. I think Jesus is making it pretty clear that the call to follow him is a call to surrender. It's full surrender of every aspect of our lives. Everything in our lives now. Everything is now reordered, reprioritized. Every desire, every goal compared to Jesus now is subject. The Apostle Paul talks about it like this. He lists all his accomplishments, his own personal glory, his own good. And he says this in the letter to Philippians. I didn't make a slide for it because I forgot. So just listen from Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Everything good about me, Paul says, is a loss compared to Christ. In, In fact, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, Paul writes, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the Uh, the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Compared to Jesus, Paul says, everything else is a loss. Paul calls it rubbish, garbage. So we have to ask, is my family rubbish? Well, no. Is my life trash? Well, no. But anything Anything, no matter how good we think it is, held up against the light and glory of Jesus comparatively is nothing. So the call to follow Jesus is a call to commitment to him above everything else. That's the first thing. The second, Jesus continues. It's a call to count or consider the cost. If this is what the life of a disciple is like, one where Jesus is the the highest of priorities in everything, if that's the life of a disciple, then that kind of life has a cost to it. Verse 28, he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? Verse 31, Or what king, going out to encounter another king in battle, will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet the one who's coming at him with 20,000? Two illustrations. Prompting us to consider, have you considered the cost of what you're about to do? And I think these are both interesting. Now, say you're going to build a tower. You sit down and you ask, do I have the resources necessary to do this project? If not, well, if we start, but we can't finish it, it's likely that it stands there half complete. And in this case, a tower that is half complete is completely useless. What good is a tower that you can't get up on top of and use? It's a pile, an organized pile of brick, right? So anyone who looks at this half-completed project will go, that guy's kind of a moron. He's a fool. He, 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 didn't, he didn't finish. What's being insinuated, it would have been better for you to not even start the process than just quit in the middle. 
in this case. That's the illustration, I think, the point Jesus is giving. In the second one, it's not mockery and shame that's at stake, right? So people look on the half-completed tower and they're like, that guy didn't think this through. What a fool. In the second illustration, there are lives on either side of this army, not including just the soldiers. So life is at stake. And Jesus says, suppose another king is at war with you. You have control over 10,000 soldiers. They have control over 20,000 soldiers. You sit down and go, two to one odds in open warfare. Maybe we should send a delegation. Right? I don't think we're going to win this one. It would be better to send someone ahead. Maybe we can negotiate a truce so we don't have to die today. Jesus said something similar back in Luke, right? As you're going with your accuser to the magistrate, settle with him on the way. Because wouldn't it be better to deal with it before you get to the judgment of the judge? And I love this. Because the call to discipleship is a personal call, Jesus looks at his, these, this crowd of people and he goes, which one of you, when building a tower, which one of you, when commanding an army, The first illustration, the tower, Jesus is essentially asking, are you willing to pay what it costs all the way to the end? Can you afford what I'm selling? That's a hard question. Second question is also hard. He's giving not just can you afford what I'm selling, but can you afford to not consider what I'm telling you? Can you afford to not consider what I'm saying? And then in verse 33, Jesus ties this commitment and cost all together. And he says, so therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus brings it all back here to this idea of surrender. To renounce is a great word. Renounce is to give up, to say farewell to. Bye-bye. One commentary uh, writer in Luke says this. Does this mean that Christians can't have personal possessions? And Jesus does say to not renounce to renounce all that he has. Like, does following Jesus mean we should abandon our spouses and neglect our parents and children? Of course not. Please don't take that from this message this morning. That kind of flat and rigid application fails to do justice to the real point of Jesus' teaching, which is this, that there can be no split loyalties in the hearts of his followers. That's what he's pressing on. There can't be two masters. You can't have competing sets of priorities. And as Devin said it, the call to discipleship might look a little different for different people, right? Planning a church in the Middle East is going to require the surrender of different things than pastoring a church in rural North Dakota. Or working as the the vice president of sales for a multinational company is going to require a different set of things, a surrender of a different set of things than a mother who's at home with her children. But each are called by Jesus to follow him in ways that are unique to their circumstance. It's not that everyone always gives up the exact same things to follow Jesus. But that every disciple is willing to give up everything and anything if Jesus requires it. That's the key. And if you've noticed, this is now the third time that Jesus has said, if this isn't you, you cannot be my disciple. The call to follow Jesus is a call to commitment to Jesus above all things. It's a call to consider the weight, the significance of what the cost of that kind of life actually is. If we're going to follow Jesus with all that we are, all the way to the end. 
And the third and final thing is the caution. Verses 34 and 35, Jesus continues and gives an illustration. Salt is good. We all say amen. But if salt has lost its taste, Jesus says, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Interesting. Now salt, common table salt for us, sodium chloride, it's always sodium chloride, right? Salt is always salt. And I've actually had this conversation with someone who comes out of a a biology background who works in the medical field who says, how does salt become not salt? So we talked about this. And scholars give us a couple of options for how we can understand this illustration. I'll just give you two that I think both of which are kind of helpful and could be either one. I'm not going to take a theological position on what exactly it is. I'll just give you both of them and do with them what you want. First is this. Salt, as used at the time in the first century Near East, um, might not be the, the purity of salt that we're familiar with now, all separated out and put in a nice little blue cardboard can with a little metal pour top. Right? It, often salt is gathered off deposits. Sometimes in this region around the Dead Sea, you can see clusters of kind of salt deposits that have been left along the, the, the shore or other areas where minerals are gathered for various things. And so the purity of the salt might not be the best. It might be mixed with other minerals, and if you were to really take it all apart and see the different parts, you'd get some sodium chloride and some other things. So over time, the good salt, the usable parts, would be used up or worn away. And what was left was not really salt. It was something else that was left over, some byproduct, and it would be useless as a preservative, which is often what salt was used for, or for fertilizer, which is something else I learned this week when reading about salt. That salt, at the time, was not only used to preserve food, it also would have been used to preserve the fertilizing property of manure. Interesting, right? Salt was used with animal manure as a fertilizer in small amounts to keep the manure from fermenting so that it would be useful for fertilizing, fertilizing crops longer. There you go. That's why the manure pile is listed. I was like, why is this here? Now I know. Now you know. Congratulations. Right? So the idea is just that if salt is no longer salty, it's useless. Like if the properties you're using it for have, have worn off or been used up, what you have left is good for nothing, and so we throw it away. Another way of looking at it is just this idea that pure salt is always salty. Like salt can't be non-salt. So Jesus is referring to something that's really not possible. He's using it kind of like a rhetorical uh, device. There's no such thing as unsalty salt. So there's no such thing as a half-hearted disciple. You're either salty or you're not salty. And either way, or some other way you want to interpret this, I think the, the focus of what Jesus is leaning at, or leaning into, is the same. That being a disciple of Jesus means being all in. It's salt, or it's not. And that's the rub. Because we look at this, all with the best intentions and the desires to, to follow Jesus without reservation. And we look at our own lives and go, there's sometimes I'm not real salty, in the biblical sense. This very morning, this very morning, I looked outside at the rain, out my front door as I was looking for my coat, and I see 
my rusty red pickup, which is more rust than red at this point, sitting in front of my house where I parked it last night. I put air in the tire last night because it was low. And this morning, it was like totally flat. And my first thought was, I was mad. I was frustrated. Like, seriously, God? Now, like this morning, we have other car issues. Now even the rusty truck is not working. Right? And it's just a tire. I'll change it when I get home. It's no big deal. But all that goes to show is, even in that moment, the old self that still indwells here, is, is fighting against hindering my devotion to Jesus in a moment of frustration, right? Because the, the challenge is, as we read this, that anything less than, than, than full surrender posture of my heart is salt that's losing its saltiness, right? And so it has some weight to it as we consider like, what's going on in my own heart as the old man slowly dies and by God's grace is being renewed? And then Luke closes this section with Jesus' own words. So Jesus closes this, this really nice, you know, sales pitch. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which is kind of a smack. Some of you are not going to hear what I have to say. Some of you will. That's kind of how Jesus closes this section with this crowd of people. Can you imagine the looks on their faces as they're just listening? So I have two kind of applications, two takeaways to, to wrestle with maybe today as, as you're hanging out at the lunch table as a family or I know it's a great Mother's Day lunch conversation. So how's your discipleship walk with Jesus? Half-hearted, you know? <laughs> Don't ask someone that, just, you know, ask yourself that. But that's, that's my first question. Do we want to buy what Jesus is selling? And he's not just hitting the highlights. Jesus is giving us the hard sell. That, that, that disciples of Jesus are taking up their cross and following him. And, and I just want to be clear. Josh made an, an excellent point just talking about building an idea, a theology around what it means to just suffer for Jesus and that it's worth it. Right? Disciples of Jesus don't take some kind of weird, morbid enjoyment out of pain and difficulty. That's not what this is. Rather, I think it means that the disciple of Jesus, someone who is a Christian, who's following Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, is being transformed little by little, being sanctified, that the disciple of Jesus understands the sacrifice and believes that the sacrifice is worth it. That the present sufferings and hardships are not worth comparing as the Apostle Paul says, not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So we enter into discipleship with our eyes wide open, knowing that there are indeed costs to following Jesus. But the benefits we receive, not only the benefits to come, we'll talk about those in a second, the, the benefit now that He's the one who provides, that He is near us, that we are His, the blessings we often experience here and all the more the glory that we can't even begin to conceive of that is coming, that it is worth it. That's why I think Jesus makes the pitch the way He does. He's not just painting this like rosy, happy picture. Come to Jesus and everything's going to be swell. So people then come and then are just leveled when hard things come. He doesn't say that. Rather, Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 11. He says, 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now to quote our friend Diedrich again, he says this, Only the man who follows the command of Jesus single-mindedly and unresistingly lets his yoke, Jesus' yoke, rest upon him finds Jesus' burden easy, is under its gentle pressure, and receives the power to persevere in the right way. The command of Jesus is hard, unutterably hard, for those who try to resist it. But for those who willingly submit, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. It's when we understand that the call to follow Jesus is a call to full surrender, that verses like Matthew 6.33 have a little more oomph behind them. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So if Jesus is speaking to you and to me, where are we still half-hearted? Where do we tend to be drawn away? What things grab our attention and rob some of our devotion? That's the first thing that we need to wrestle with. Here's the second thing. When are you and I most tempted to, ado- to adopt a salesman strategy that is different from Jesus' strategy when we talk about Jesus? When we consider the call to be a disciple, we consider what it means to be a disciple of Jesus through the gospel, and then do we shy away from the Jesus over everything message? Do we shy away from the come and die message? Do we aim only at the good parts and leave out the hard parts? Maybe this applies to you, maybe it doesn't. But, but I think culturally, for the last 50 plus years, that the general Christian witness in the West, cultural West, post-enlightenment, is this. It's come to Jesus. It's easy. It's easy. Bonhoeffer, in this book, Cost of Discipleship, again, top ten list for me, he gives a warning about the preaching of cheap grace in contrast to costly grace. The grace of God to us in Jesus is free, he says, but not cheap. It costs the Son of God his life, and we lay down our lives to follow him. Here's the final quote from our favorite German Lutheran pastor this morning. Talking about the grace of God that calls to sinners like you and me, he says this, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So then our faith is grounded in this incarnation. It is the grace of God to us, Jesus. And so it is a kindness of God to say, through Christ, come and die. And so our gospel message is this message of Jesus. He has called us and he commissions us to invite others to come and follow Jesus. Come and die with us. 
Friends, Jesus is calling us from half-heartedness to wholehearted devotion. It's a call that reorders every priority. It's a call to lay down our lives. And it is worth it. So this morning, as we come to the table for communion, as we look again at the, the simple elements of bread and cup, consider what they represent. That Jesus endured the cross, the cost, the shame for the joy that was set before him, the joy of making a people for himself, the joy of welcoming in sheep who are not yet of this fold, the joy of his rule and reign as an everlasting king in an everlasting kingdom. So as we come to the table, let's, let's go with that in mind today, that he is through Christ, inviting us to come and die. Let's pray. Father, we confess it is it is easy for my heart, for our hearts to be distracted and drawn away, to be preoccupied, And yet it is a kindness of you to remind us and call us to wholehearted devotion. So we confess we are often split, double-minded. And in your mercy, we pray that you would show us a kindness even this morning in alerting us, bringing conviction where it's needed. That we might walk not in condemnation, not in guilt, not in shame, but in confession. Believing that in Christ you receive our confession and offer forgiveness. I pray you'd continue your work to purify and beautify your church. That you'd make us one of one heart with you, Lord Jesus, and one heart together. Single-minded, wholehearted. Would you encourage us as we come to the table that we'd see the bread and the juice with, with fresh eyes, that you'd renew our weary souls, and that you'd satisfy your people Help us as we come to the table. Receive our worship in Jesus' name. Amen.